I'm Effie Parks. Welcome to Once Upon a Jane, the podcast. This is a place I created for us to connect and share the stories of our not-so-typical lives. Raising kids who are born with rare genetic syndromes and other types of disabilities can feel pretty isolating. What I know for sure is that when we can hear the triumphs and challenges from others who get it, we can find a lot more laughter, a lot more hope, and feel a lot less alone. I believe there are some magical healing powers that can happen for all of us through sharing our stories, and I'll take all the help I can get. Once Upon a Gene is proud to be part of Bloodstream Media. Living in a family affected by rare and chronic illness can be isolating, and sometimes the best medicine is connecting to the voices of people who share your experience. This is why Bloodstream Media produces podcasts, blogs, and other forms of content for patients, families, and clinicians impacted by rare and chronic diseases. Visit bloodstreammedia.com to learn more. Today's episode is brought to you by Dante Labs, the global leader in genomics solutions for rare diseases. With their Rare Disease Health Package, they offer comprehensive whole genome sequencing for rare disease patients. To learn more about Dante Labs and how they're revolutionizing healthcare, visit us. DanteLabs.com. Hi there, and welcome back to another episode of Once Upon a Gene. I am your host, Effie Parks, and I am so truly honored to bring a conversation with a really special guest today. Her story is full of strength and perseverance and ridiculous determination, and she's extra special. She's a mom who was forever changed, of course, uh, when her two beloved sons, Chris and Patrick, were diagnosed with Duchenne muscular dystrophy. And throughout this heartbreak and adversity, she not only became a pillar of strength for her family, but also for countless others facing rare disease. In 1994, because of her love for her sons and her commitment to finding a treatment, she founded the parent project Muscular Dystrophy. And today, it's because of people like her that the world has witnessed the very first child with this devastating disease to receive a groundbreaking gene therapy treatment. We delve into how in the world she did this, especially starting in the 90s and later losing her beautiful sons. And all I have to say is we're truly standing on the shoulders of giants like her. And her story is so full of like fun, twisty, like movie moments. I also probably said the word amazing 300 times, so you can ding every time you hear that because I couldn't even dig into my brain to use my vocabulary when she was telling me her story. Anyways, please welcome my guest, Pat Furlong. Hi, Pat. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Effie. I'm delighted to be here. I'm so delighted you're here. I've been stalking you for a very long time. And we finally made it happen, which I'm so grateful to you for, for spending the time with me. And I can't wait to have a conversation with you and share it with our listeners today. Well, thank you. It's really my pleasure. And I hope you weren't stalking me for long. I'm, I hope to be very accessible, but thank you for, for doing that. And thank you for stalking. Uh, well, you're just a really remarkable human being. And yeah, anyways, let's just start there. Can you share with, with our listeners a bit about your, your personal journey and how you became involved in the rare disease community, specifically in the world of muscular dystrophy? Sure. It was a long time ago, 40 years. So it's been a while. I, I have four children. I had four children and still have four children 40 years ago. And my little boys really were 
not keeping up with their peers. We would have friends inside, you know, and at the house and the little boys across the street would be jumping up and down and running up and down the steps. And my little boys would be coloring, right? And they'd be quiet. And so then I thought, well, I'm the most, I'm the best mom in the world, right? And I just have very well-mannered children. And then I realized that that's not true at all. That in fact, they were reluctant to run up and down the stairs and they weren't comfortable jumping, for instance. That took me on a journey of asking many people to include my husband's a physician and his colleagues, well, tell me what's wrong, tell me what's happening. I, I'm worried about this. And and basically at the time was dismissed, right? You're a neurotic mom, you're worried about everything, which, which I do tend to worry about everything. And they'll grow out of it. And they were big boys, my husband played football. So there were all these, there was a litany of excuses about why they weren't really weak that I, and I don't think I, captured it as the word weakness, but why they were more quiet, why they didn't run around, why they didn't ride a bicycle, why they didn't do stairs. And, you know, as people dismiss you, then there's this sort of gnawing at your chest, right? It's like this this ball of worry metastasizes throughout you. And then I was crazy with this. And I would ask everyone I knew, don't you see this? Don't you see this? And, and I'm really worried about that. Finally, one day, uh, Chris and Patrick, uh, we live on a, on a cul-de-sac and they were outside riding, trying to ride their little bikes, which they never really rode those little tricycles or, or whatever. And Chris was attempting to pedal a big wheel. As he tried, I think what occurred is he injured his Achilles tendon and that resulted in pain. So he started to cry and then he was getting swelling and bruising in the area of the ankle. And I carried him inside the house and gave him some Tylenol and rested with him and slept with him that night because he really was uncomfortable during the night. And in the morning, my husband said to me, I want you to go see an orthopedic surgeon friend of ours. And and I had never, I mean, I, I knew this orthopedic surgeon as a friend, but I had never taken the boys to see um, an orthopedic surgeon. So I carried Chris into Steve's office, and this was before office hours, and because Tom had called Steve and said, come see Patrick, something went on. And, and so he did, and I walked in the office, and Steve just looked at me, sort of with these eyes wide open, and then he looked at Chris, my son Chris, and he said, that's Duchenne muscular dystrophy. And I, you know, stopped in my tracks. What, well, what is that? I'd never heard of it. And even though I'm in nursing, uh, my career had been in adult medicine because I believed that children shouldn't be sick. So I asked Steve at the time, so what, what do I do now? And he said, well, first tell me what Patrick looks like. And I said, Patrick is exactly the same body, but two years younger. And he said, then you have two with Duchenne muscular dystrophy. So I said, oh, oh so what, what, where do we go? I mean, how did we get this treated? What's, what's the answer? And he said, there isn't an answer that these young boys that you have are, are weak and they're going to get more, get increase in their weakness. They're going to stop walking probably early by eight or nine years old. They won't lift their hand to their mouth by the time they're teenagers and they'll be dead before they reach the age of 20. So that's a lot. I remember he, he then he drew blood. He said, we're going to do this one test, which turns out to a CK test. And he said, it will be dramatically abnormal. So he drew the blood, sent it off to the hospital. And I live in Middletown, Ohio, which is a very small town. So went over to the hospital. We knew the pathologist. His name was Mario. And and I called Mario every, I think, five minutes. What's what's the answer here? What, what are we looking at? What's normal? What are we expecting? 
And Mario kept saying, I don't know, I don't know. So finally, I went over to the hospital, into the pathology lab and said, okay, I need the answer to this. I want to know if this is abnormal and I want to know how abnormal it is. And he said, I actually do not have the answer. And I said, why? Because your machine is not calibrated to get this high of an answer. And he said, exactly. We don't have the capability. The normal of this test is zero to 200. And I'm guessing this is in the thousands. And so it turned out with the injury that Patrick Christopher had, it was 72,000. So massive muscle deterioration based on the injury, also his disease, we, we see very elevated CKs. And so that day we had confirmation of Duchenne muscular dystrophy with nowhere to go. Hey listeners, I wanna take a moment to talk about Dante Labs and their groundbreaking rare disease health package. If you or someone you know is facing the challenges of a rare disease, this is a game changer. With their advanced whole genome sequencing, Dante Labs provides a comprehensive view of your genetic makeup, helping to pinpoint the cause of a rare disease and offering potential treatment options. Dante Labs understands the time is of the essence for rare disease patients. That's why their results are available within weeks, not months. Plus, their pre- and post-specialist consultations offer invaluable support throughout your diagnostic journey. So, if you're seeking answers and support for rare disease, turn to the experts at Dante Labs. Visit us.dantelabs.com to explore the rare disease health package and take charge of your health today. I began a worldwide search at the time, there was no internet, so I had to order publications about this disease, which took two weeks to get. And then I would sit up and read them all night and sob um, about there is nothing to do. And and I then took the boys down to Cincinnati Children's Hospital for a definitive diagnosis, which was silly in my head because we already had a definitive diagnosis. And this was an admission at the time where they did crazy tests on my sons, like an EMG, which, which was barbaric and not useful. But that said, it was many years ago. And then the diagnosis was done by a biopsy in which the tissue looked, uh, the muscle cells looked really awful, abnormal, et cetera. So um, that, that was the start of my journey. I then did crazy things, I think, at the time. I went to the bank within a few, a few weeks after this diagnosis and I borrowed $100,000 because I thought at the time, I can just figure out how to cure them, right, for $100,000. I think any biopharma listening will just probably roll with laughter, but that was my guess at the time. I mean, how 100,000 sounded like a lot of money, and it was at the time. And, and then, because when I called people who were running the laboratories with the very limited data available, and called them, and I, and I introduced myself as a a mom with, with two boys with Duchenne, could I come see them? The answer was no. There's nothing, you know, we're doing this work, et cetera. You know, they really weren't interested in visitors. And certainly in terms of physician, they see patients in the context of a, a clinic visit, right? They don't see people who just want to talk. So then I decided I'd make up a story. So I made up a story that I was a physician and I would call various clinics and say, I'm a physician with two patients with Duchenne and I would like to come talk to you. I'll be in the area, which I was not, but I'll be in the area. I'd like to sit down with you and talk to you about, about the future of Duchenne and what you know. And then I would call the major laboratories like Yale, Harvard, Penn, et cetera. And I said, I'm a postdoc looking for a job. 
so that I could get in there and understand what do you know? What don't we know? What are the gaps in this knowledge? Where is the money coming from? You know, who's giving you money to do this work? Who are the clinicians that see these patients? Do you get any government money? So I wanted to understand what the landscape looked like. And so I went into major labs as a postdoc looking for a job because I wanted honesty and I didn't want to be dismissed. I wanted them to take me seriously. And then when I got to the University of Pennsylvania with Dr. Lee Sweeney, who was um, chair of physiology at the University of Pennsylvania, he just kept staring at me. And I, he said, you, you'd like a job as a postdoc? I said, yeah. And, he, and then he gave me a long list of people. He said, have you, you know, have you known this person and that person? And I said, well, yes. And then no, and yes, and no, no, no. And then I had tears in my eyes and he said, so you're, you're not a postdoc, are you? And I said, no, but I wanted someone to take me seriously. So it's that, that first, yes, I'll take you seriously and let's work together. <laughs> Pat. How come I didn't know this awesome part of your story? This is like some this is like some Aaron Brockovich, like who's playing you in a movie kind of mom <laughs> detective story. Yeah, hardly a movie, but you know, I mean, you, you do what you can do, right? And and I I remember being called desperate and crazy and and I thought, you know, that's a compliment. I treasure my children for as long as I can have them and forever. What can I do to get real facts? that I could understand and that I could utilize to, to try to do whatever little I could do to move things forward. Because at the end of the day, I, I am still crushed knowing that parents like you, like our parents in Duchenne and other rare diseases, sit in that same exam room all alone to hear someone deliver a message that says, this is going to be a very difficult road ahead and you might lose your child. I will say to you, I struggle with that every single day when I hear it. I want it changed. I want a diagnosis at newborn screening. I want us to diagnose, and I want a path forward to treatment for every rare disease. And I can't even imagine, as I say, I go back to my thought, children shouldn't be sick. They should reach their dreams, right? And I think that's why we're on this earth to make that happen. Yes, my hand is in the air. Oh my gosh. May every rare disease parent be desperate and crazy. Yeah, I think it is an honor to be desperate and crazy. You know, I think about you in the exam room all those years ago, getting told that information. And unfortunately, a lot of us are still being delivered the message just like that, which is frustrating. And I know it's not happening all the time, but it does still happen. So thank you for still dedicating yourself to help create that change. And then I think about you being dismissed for so long, right? Because it wasn't so visible in the first couple years. And there's no internet. Are you kidding me? And you're ordering books and pretending to be a postdoc and getting a loan. I mean, Pat, that is some serious, serious badassery. It is, it is badassery, but you know what? Children are worth any badassery you want to do. Uh, and I think as long as it drives toward a goal, I wanted information. I wanted information that I could use, that I could figure out what is the next step, right? Where do we go next? You know, when you were talking in the beginning and you said nobody even knew anything about it and you had never heard of it, I credit people like you to that because I hear, even before my son Ford was born, if I heard muscular dystrophy, I knew what it was. It was kind of like cystic fibrosis, right? Like most regular people walking among us kind of know what those things are. And it's because of work that you've done. Uh, I mean, Parent Project Muscular Dystrophy is one of the most, I mean, it's a leading organization in the rare disease space for sure. 
tell us about the origins of you starting that after you sat in that room and they eyed you as, you know, not being honest about being a postdoc. What were your next steps and how did that evolve? Well, when, when I was found out, and I think people were beginning <laughs> to find out because it turns out everyone talks. They probably really talked on the phone, right? Some crazy woman shows up at their office. <laughs> so what happened next is is kind of a funny thing. I, I, I had also met Eric Hoffman, who was in the lab of Lewis Kunkel when the gene was cloned. And Eric is credited with the identification of the protein dystrophin. So a really bright guy. And he was at the University of Pittsburgh. So... I was speaking with him and he already knew who I was by this time. And I said, I want all the people to get together. I want all of the, these investigators that I've spoken to to get together. And I had been also in parallel looking at, are there treatments for my son? And, and again, we don't have enough evidence. We didn't have enough, but, but you, you, know, you, you go with what you had. And there was a person doing myoblast transfer, stem, stem cells suggested to work in Memphis, Tennessee, and I was there with my son because I wanted to know, does it work? And Eric had written me a letter and said, it doesn't work. And I wrote him a letter back and said, I know you scientifically are probably like a thousand miles ahead of me, but I want to know as his mother that this doesn't work. And I'm going to stay here until I learn that. And, and then he wrote me another letter and told me I was crazy. And I said, it's fine. You know, it's fine. I've, I've got to learn here. So then I met with Eric and said, I want to get all these people together and I want to have a meeting with all of them so that we can, I can understand what is a good next step. And he said, no one will come to the meeting because you're crazy. And I said, okay, um, what would get them to come to a meeting? So he said, you know, what's somebody important coming? You'd have to have a hook. So on his desk was Time Magazine. And this was 1994. Time Magazine um, on the front of Time was Michael Blaze and French Anderson. Michael Blaze and French Anderson were the first two people, physicians, PhDs, to do a gene therapy protocol in this severe combined immune deficiency disease, the bubble kids, the kids with no immune system. So on the front of Time Magazine, on his desk, is this photograph. And I said, oh, they're coming. And he said to me, they're not coming. I said, no, 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 I promise they're coming. Let's have a meeting. They'll be there. And it turns out that I, I had met a family which has an advocacy group called Defeat Duchenne in Canada. And I called them and said, let's have a meeting. Let's do it. Can we do it in Canada? Because, because frankly, they had more access to venues than I did. And they said, yes. So together, um, we had this meeting. And Eric said, no one will come unless somebody important comes. So you might imagine what I did. I flew out to um, University of Southern California in Pasadena. And I sat outside the office of French Anderson till he walked out the door that day. And I said to him, I have lied about you and I need your help desperately. And he looked at me, I think he was, uh, because I'm very tall and he's not, I think he was a little terrified of me. And so I said, here's what I need. I need one day of your time. I will pay you whatever it costs, thinking I hope it doesn't cost us a lot. I will fly you to Canada. I want you to start this meeting because if you come, they'll come. And he said, okay. So in, in uh, at Robarts Research Institute in Canada, we held our first meeting. There were 35 scientists there and me like flattened against the wall because French Anderson walked up through this crowd and said, oh, I can cure this in 18 months. I honestly thought that would start the biggest fight ever because you saw Eric Hoffman was there. I thought his jugulars would fall apart. He was so red and they were saying, no. 
This is not even possible because the disease isn't well characterized. We don't know anything about care. There are no standards of care. We don't have any data on any patients. And there's there's very little money here. The money is done by some you know, small foundations or families, but there's little to no NIH money invested here. There's no federal money that is cares about this rare disease. That was my business plan. So good enough. And, and then they said there, there have to be centers of excellence where a critical mass of people focused in on doing a particular approach, such as downstream, what happens because this protein dystrophin is missing, or replacing dystrophin itself through a gene therapy or cell therapy. Okay, so that was, and they argued and argued and argued and, and said all these why. Meanwhile, I'm writing a business plan. And the business plan was you need to characterize the disease. You need uh, centers of excellence. You need federal money. You need standards of care. So that, you know, that was very simple sort of translation of what I wrote down that day. So when the meeting was over, I did a couple things. One is without any money except my $100,000. I had a small group of parents working with me that I loved, Donna Sekamano, Brad Miller, Al Hempel, all sorts of wonderful people. And I said, let's do a center of excellence. We went to Eric Hoffman because he was at the University of Pittsburgh and offered to do a center of excellence there. He was Happy for the money, a little unhappy because we wanted to promote it. You know, we had all sorts of ideas about how to market this without really having an opportunity to market it. So we signed an agreement to give University of Pittsburgh $300,000 a year for five years running. And that would be a Duchenne Muscular Dystrophy Center of Excellence. It was called the DMDRC, Duchenne Muscular Dystrophy Research Center. We signed a grant to the University of Pittsburgh. I will say we didn't have any money, but that was a different matter. Then we went out to UCLA um, because Jim Tidball and Melissa Spencer were there, and we asked them to do a center of excellence on the downstream, the inflammation and fibrosis replacement, fiber fatty replacement that occurs because of the lack of dystrophin. So that was our second DMDRC, and we signed again a contract for $300,000 a year for five years running. Now you might ask, where's the money? And I will say to you, we didn't have it, but we were determined and crazy, desperate parents. And we said to ourselves, we'll get it. And we did. We have never defaulted ever. Now, we don't conduct business that way now, but you have to start somewhere, right? So you put yourself in debt at $600,000 a year, not too much different from the 100000 I borrowed because we were six people on the board by then. I figured we we're all going to go to jail. But, but we created those DMDRCs. Then as sometimes the universe gives you a gift, right? We, we did first a feasibility study on standards of care at the University of Pittsburgh, and the person there really didn't want to do it So um, and didn't feel like standards of care were even possible. So there was that. And then um, through lovely Annie Kennedy that you probably know from every life, uh, as she was working for the Muscular Dystrophy Association, and uh, a man, uh, so a family came in, with a new diagnosis of their son, and his name was Joel Wood. And Joel um, is a lobbyist because I was asking questions about how do you get federal money? And I had been to the Office of Rare Disease under Steve Groft and begged him to do a meeting on Duchenne. So I think it was 1999 because I had to get in a queue and they had I wanted to fund it, but you can't do that if, if it's federal meeting. So I got in the queue and in 1999, 
there was the first meeting held on NIH campus that mentioned Duchenne muscular dystrophy. During that time, Joe Wood's son, James, was diagnosed, and Annie Kennedy took him aside during the meeting. I imagined her taking him into a closet because she was working for the Muscular Dystrophy Association, and she said, there's this crazy woman. Her name is Pat, and her name is Pat Furlong, and she is crazy, but she got this meeting and you might want to talk to her because she's trying to figure out how to get money out of the federal government. Joel called me and we laughed to this day because I don't think I asked about James and I know he was probably crying on the phone, but I said, Joel, so you work, you're a lobbyist. How do you get money out of the government? And he said, oh my gosh, as I say, we laugh about this today because he'll say to me, did you even care? I said, he did care, Joel, but I just needed to get more money because I didn't feel like we could go anywhere without more money. So Joel, I told him about this meeting at NIH and he said, I don't know anything about science. I said, just come there and tell me how, tell me what the roadmap looks like. So I met him in person at that meeting. Dr. Stephen Katz, who's now was wonderful and is deceased at this moment led the meeting and opened it up and said, we're here because of Parent Project Muscular Dystrophy and we're here to discuss Duchenne, which was, which was a symphony for me. It was amazing. And then Joel and I sat down and talked and he said, you need to hire professional consultants or lobbyists in Washington. And I said, so he, he showed me this book of, I don't know, it seemed like a zillion um, groups that, that were doing lobbying activities. And I said, we need rare disease, we need pediatrics, we need both sides of the aisle. We need people who are going to care about this, terribly care about this. And then we need friends in Congress. And Joel said, I've got friends, I'm a lobbyist. So we, we from that meeting, went over and met um, what's now called Fagre Drinker. It's a firm at Washington, one of the Washington firms that I dearly love and we've used for now, what, 21 or two years. And I met Dave Zook and Dina Morris and a group of people that said, okay, this is important to us too. So we, at that moment, signed a contract with them. Again, not having any money, me going back to my little group of people and saying I spent more money. And so we then, on the back of an envelope, I remember Davis looking at me and saying, so if you could write a law, what would the law say? And what I did my business plan, standard of, standards of care, centers of excellence, and a research plan. So that became the Muscular Dystrophy Care Act. It was introduced into the House and Senate in 2001. It was signed by President George W. in 2001, which was amazing legislation. And we now have six centers of excellence across the muscular dystrophies. The investment in Duchenne muscular dystrophy from that 2001 legislation till now is around $700 million. We have standards of care. And I think what I can honestly say to you is, Effie, that that investment was the tipping point. That federal legislation where our friends in Congress, still our friends in Congress, Senator Collins, Senator Wicker, uh, Mrs. Uh, Matt, uh, uh, Matsui, all, all of them, some of them, Senator Specter, who's, uh, who's gone, the late Senator Wellstone, who really wrapped their arms around us and said, this is important to us, got this legislation passed. That was a tipping point for industry to take notice of our disease. And right now we have about 35 companies that are working on developing ther therapies, gene therapy, cell therapy, um, anacet and oligonucleotides, and then downstream, um, and working on trying to preserve muscle fibers. All of it, that landscape has changed. And now, as you know, we have 
for for approvals in anisense oligonucleotides. We have a deflaz quarter and plaza approved, which is a steroid. And we have, as of June 20th, our first gene therapy approved. Your energy is palpable and it's so fresh after all of these decades. And it just fills me up. Shout out to Annie Kennedy for her steadfast dedication to the rare community. You totally give me Amber Freed vibes with stalking Mr. French. I love that story so much. And I feel like that needed a moment of silence for the incredible moment that that was and what you did and how he listened, how what you did is now almost just a standard procedure now, right? It it has become standard. Yeah, to, <laughs> it has. You you procedurized it or whatever the word is right there that I can't grasp. But you set a you set a framework for families to do this quicker and to do this faster and to do this with less pain and with less dismissal and with less crazy talk, maybe. And it's just really, really incredible. I'm just going to take a note. Find out how to um, nominate Pat for Nobel Peace Prize someday. Oh, you're so funny. Man, Christopher and Patrick have been on my mind for several months, especially after, you know, the exciting news, the recent news with the FDA approval that we'll talk about. But something else just has really, really stuck with me. And I can't remember who told you this, but after Christopher and Patrick passed away, you know, maybe it would have been so normal and accepted and understandable for a parent to just settle into that, right? And to know that they did everything they could and to take that time to grieve and to take a break. And you didn't. And your friend also said something really profound. And and he said, don't give up. This can be your get even strategy. And I wonder, was that the sentence that you needed to hear did that sort of change the landscape of you maybe stopping and taking a break and you know going about your life so it's it's funny when the boys died there were my you know i guess to be sort of a uh, maybe a crazy statement if you lose someone you love right there's a lot a lot of activity around that loss and then um the saying goodbye to that individual. And in our case, it was two boys. And then my mom, my mom was wonderful. She'd say, and then the lasagna stops, right? People stop, don't stop by, don't bring the lasagna, don't call. Um, and, and that's when the loneliness, I think, is so profound, right? Because in the busyness of the loss and the people coming by, you're busy, you don't have a moment. And then there's that alone time that you, you are all by yourself in pain and you don't know what to do with it, right? There's pain and there's anger and there's grief, which I think is different from pain and, and, and frustration at a medical community. I mean, I'm part of the medical community that was my early career, holy and transplantation and renal dialysis and ICU and CCU where patients came to our unit and they, not all, but some of them lived, which is pretty amazing. Um, some of the things that we, and some of the kinds of diagnoses we had in our ICUs and they lived, right? Small miracles. And then, and then you're alone. And, and I remember being very alone and I, we have a high school track that isn't far from my house. So I usually walk up to the track and walk around because then I don't have to worry that a car's going to run over me because I'm not paying attention. And so I walk around that track and I remember just, remember just walking around and walking around and saying, you know, where do I go from here? And and just a few days after that, the lasagna had stopped. There was extraordinary quiet. My family, we couldn't look at each other. In the, we couldn't look at each other because we, we were so sad. And 
you know, it's like if I talk to you about this, you'll cry and I don't want you to cry. Well, we all should just cry because it hurts. And Lee called me and said, you know enough to move this if you want to try. And, and it could be a get even strategy. You could get even with something that hurt you so deeply. And at first I thought, you're crazy. <laughs> just like me. And, and, he's, and, and I think I might have even said, you're crazy. And he said, yeah, so are you. And that was enough. And I thought, all right, if by something I do, one family has it slightly easier, then I'm good to go. Thank you for that. That was so beautiful. And I think so many people can resonate with that too, right? Like when the lasagna stops, even from a diagnosis to a death, there are so many points on the landscape of rare disease where the lasagna stops. Your dedication has certainly paid off, Pat. I mean, you've done a lot. And I mean, you are a giant and everyone looks toward what you have done and what you all have done with muscular dystrophy. And now there's an FDA approval on the first gene therapy. I've been following that little boy who was do dosed first, at least as far as I know, he was first. And I know there's been a couple more since. Can you share some of the insights into the emotions of getting that phone call and the experience when you heard that news? Well, I should say I've known Jerry Mandel for a very long time. I saw Jerry in my travels, and we actually had a big argument about steroids and the trials that they were running. I just wanted my, I didn't want a trial. I didn't want a placebo. I, you know, it's the, it's the universal thought, just give me something that works. And he said, you don't know if it works. And I said, I just want it to work. And so that led to a discussion about um, what you want and what is, is, is different, or I, is, can be very different. So I've known him for a long time. As, as I saw gene therapy, and, and, and I will say that Eric Hoffman 20 years, 30 years ago said, we'll just do gene therapy as if it would be easy. And I said, how easy will it be? And he just looked at me and said, well, maybe not as easy. So I'm here to say 30 years, not as easy, but now we're here. As companies and people began this discussion around gene therapy, I, as I say, I'd known Jerry and he's been a friend for a very long time. So um, with Lee Sweeney's help and discussion with my board and all of our wonderful people inside PPMD, we talked about the fact that people were talking about it, but it's slow and slow doesn't work for me very well, not ever. And so um, Lee said, you know, could we have a discussion with Jerry and, and could we ask if he could do an investigator initiated protocol to begin this and just jump started? And, and if we could jumpstart it, people might grumble that we're doing that, but but it, it would jumpstart and we could move from this, we're discussing and we're thinking and we're talking to this, that, and the FDA, maybe it would jumpstart it. So we went to Jerry because we had funded uh, other work of a number of other of his studies um, to include inclusion body myositis, the first muscle, uh, the single muscle injection of gene therapy, and he agreed. So we signed a contract with him in 2016 to do an investigator-initiated study. The first study that was planned with Jerry was would be babies, little guys under the age of four. But when he went to the FDA, the FDA said it won't be little babies. It will be um, over the age of four, four and over. And so he started that first patient, patient number one. And to be honest, in patient number one, as they came, apparently that they had been planned to be dosed at one point, but then just before they arrived at the at Nationwide Children's, one of the family members developed a temperature. And, and so Jerry said, in the interest of, of making sure everybody's safe and healthy in this patient, number one, we're going to delay it. 
So that patient then was delayed by a month and then treated. And, you know, it's that when you, when you watch the delivery of a gene therapy, I don't know if I expected bells and whistles and, uh, you know, <laughs> cloud burst something, but here was this little guy in bed and he was receiving gene therapy and we were all masked and gowned. And he was like, can we just get this done? And I want to get a brownie, <laughs> right? <laughs> and he was not masked and gowned. And here we all, and I thought from this little person's perspective, here you've got 10 people in a room, masked and gowned. It must look like a, I don't know, some weird horror show. And then it took about a little over an hour and then he was finished. And then he got his lunch and his brownie like he wanted. I think it was a donut, to be honest. And it was sort of, okay, we're done, right? And it was so simple in a way and so magical in another way. And then then you hold your breath and say to yourself, will he get sick? Well, what happened? Will he get stronger? Will we see it? Will we know it? How will we know it? And I remember seeing, seeing this little one and Jerry about maybe six, eight weeks later. And I remember saying to Jerry, What's interesting, Jerry, is that he's not lordotic anymore because boys with Duchenne usually have this lordotic gait, even slightly, where their belly sticks out because they're trying to reorganize their their weight based on weakness, right? They pull their shoulders back a little bit to, to, to get better balance, and it's called lordosis. And um, I said, he, he doesn't, he's not lordotic anymore. And Jerry looked at me and said, we're not discussing data from this study, not even your anecdotal data. <laughs> and I said, okay. In other words, shut up. Is that right? And he said, in other words, let's get the data. And we both were smiling and we couldn't stop smiling at each other because I, we knew something, you know, it's like that something you knew that you can't say out loud right now. And then as more children were, were treated and certainly living, you know, go, moving up to um, the the advisory committee meeting where you saw videos of these children doing things that, you know, when you get a diagnosis of Duchenne, at least when I did, you sit in a room and you hear they're not going to walk past a certain point. They're never going to ride a bike. They're not going to be able to do stairs very well. And here on the advisory committee meeting, you see videos of kids running up the steps, alternating feet, not holding on a banister. And you say, wow, or riding a bicycle, a two-wheeler without training wheels. You kind of say to yourself, pretty incredible, right? Um, pretty incredible. So so the approval for the four to fives on June 20, 22nd was, first of all, it, it was magical in a couple of ways. One is I'll take all the therapies we can, can gain in this world so that we can figure out who is likely to benefit to the greatest degree by the therapies and how can we get to combinations so that we preserve whatever we can in terms of muscle power and hopefully one day forever but, but also, I think it demonstrated with the regulatory agency, with Peter Marks and his group, that they do understand, that they do understand that, in our case, getting dystrophin back, even in this case, a microdystrophin, is reasonably likely. So I think it demonstrated a flexibility. I think, I hope for the rare disease community, it said to them, there is flexibility here and there is a way forward and we're in this new era of gene therapy and clearly there'll be better gene therapies and, and there'll be viruses that are better at delivery and there'll be better promoters and, and we'll get to being able to do fancy Star Wars like thing like in our case they're trying to do a midi dystrophin where they put two pieces of dystrophin in in a virus and then somehow they get in the cell and they 
they go together, which is Star Wars stuff, right? Or CRISPR when we get to that in a few years. I mean, but I think this started something big for us for sure, and hopefully for everyone. Because wouldn't it be terrific if we diagnose at birth and then treat much like those little children with uh, SMA1, Zolgensma, right? Now, again, they need combination therapies to preserve what's there, but it's a it's certainly a big step. So it was incredibly exciting. And Jerry called me when we kept refreshing that day when we knew we'd get a, a decision from FDA. And he called me and said, well, <laughs> news is out. What do you think? So I remember crying together with Jerry. It, it's been a long road. Jerry's been there for 50 years and, and it had been 40 for me since the diagnosis of my boys. And I said, you know, if only now we could roll back the years and bring back those we lost, wouldn't that be amazing? You know, I love that moment where you were kind of expecting fireworks and like this big old thing, but it was just that beautiful moment, right? And especially from the kids' point of view, right? Because we wouldn't want that big, giant, extravagant thing that they don't really understand that maybe would, you know, cause some emotional and mental health problems later, but it was just them being a kid, calm in a room, doing their appointment thing that they're semi-used to, and getting their brownie. And it was just a kid's experience, right? It wasn't a scary experience. Yeah, no. The grown-ups crying for reasons that no one could talk about, and he didn't, you know, just give me the brownie and get me out of here. Come on, right? In your journey, were there moments when you felt like the work that you were doing maybe wasn't making a significant impact? I know that sometimes you have these highs, right? And things are going great and money's coming in and research is working. And then there's just like the sludging through the mud and then even some losses here and there. So like, how do you how do you continue with the momentum and how do you keep that mindset to keep going? You know, it's so expensive. It's so much time. It wears on families. You have to make so many sacrifices. Like, what advice do you have for those patient advocates and those caregivers and those leaders who are all doing this for their disease groups who might be through that sludging through the mud type season? Well, I think the sludging through, through the mud is easier when you belong to a community because you can always find that person to call them and say, you know, this is crap and I don't think we're going anywhere. Or, uh, you know, I always, uh, I loosely use the term for some of my very close friends of 1-800-talk-me-off-a-ledge. Uh, That's my phone call to my close friends. And, and, and so I think, at least in rare diseases, I, I see sort of equal parts of, of, I think rare disease is scientifically fascinating, right? How the human body works, all, all of its physiology, how, how it repairs, how, how it moves, everything about the human body I find is fascinating. I, I, and I remember taking my sons to school and I'd see these children just go flying up the steps and I'd think that's how it's supposed to work, right? That's how it's supposed to work. When, it, when the human body is healthy, that's what it does. And, and then I see these two little boys who couldn't go up the steps. So I think it is scientifically fascinating. I think it is medically complex. So it's fascinating, complicated, frustrating, and painful. And I think if you look at it in those four quadrants, you have to have a group of people that you can do the 1-800-talk-me-off-a-ledge. You, you have to have that. There are days when I think, this is screwed up. I'm, I'm going to walk away. And then I take a walk, right? And then I talk to Chris and Pat and, and talk to myself. And I think this is too important, right? 
so you're frustrated today, so it's a pain today, so you didn't get the gift, you, you know, the donation you wanted, so you've got somebody out there saying something that you didn't like. Just worry about the things that matter and try to do that. And so for me, I belong to a community. I have people around me that I can do the 1-800-talk-me-off-a-ledge. I know inside myself that this has an answer and a good answer for everyone. And that and that's what I have to concentrate on. So I don't let the bad days win. I just acknowledge that they're a bad day. And I take a walk, have an extra Diet Coke or two or 10. Um, <laughs> and sometimes it's 10. And, and um, I just say to myself, if you can put one more foot in front of the other, then the other will be easier. And And it is, I won't say it's simple. And I won't say I haven't fallen on my face and done really stupid things. And I, I do, I still do, but I don't, I don't ever let the bad days win. I think we have a similar love for walking. I call it once upon a gene therapy. I think it's probably other than uh, finding my 1-800 talk me off the ledge person. Walking has been the most therapeutic thing for my brain and being a rare disease parent for sure. I usually try to walk a 5K every single day. I think that that helps me air my brain a little bit, listen to music, sometimes just count the trees along my path, look at the leaves, anything just to distract me. And then I can come back and work. With your extensive experience, Pat, in advocating for our rare disease community and trailblazing and witnessing the most incredible progress that's been made, what do you believe is the most pressing issue right now? that our community needs to address in order to expedite, you know, all of these treatments and cures for all of these rare diseases? Well, I think there are several. One is the access environment. Uh, I think that uh, these therapies that are going to be coming online are expensive. I think if we look at the amount of, uh, amount of investment in rare disease, it certainly doesn't even uh, get near what common diseases are costing. But I think we need to have an access environment that is willing to understand um, the rare disease component and does it like in our disease, sometimes the insurers are looking for, for improvement when the reality is these patients and families will take, I think there's not a family that doesn't go to bed every night and, and pray to whoever they pray to and say, just stop the progression here. Right? So stability is benefit. Stability is improvement in diseases where decline is, is, is the, as the course of that disease. So I think that's one thing. We can't, in our case, we can't get muscle back where it's gone. So I think that's the first thing. I think another another area that is huge is going to be combination therapies. It rolls off the tongue. We're going to need combination therapies for these patients to preserve whatever benefits they get from some of these uh, therapies like gene therapy or antisense oligonucleotides. And we keep saying that Right, but if we're going to do therapies one at a time, and we have to wait for an approval to get combination therapies, we ha we have to collect the evidence as they're uh, once safety is established. I think having uh, master protocols and uh, moving forward that look at these therapies to prove to patients, their families, prove to all of us that these therapies are are synergistic or complementary, and to be able then to take that data to the insurers to say combination therapies are the way to halt disease progression in these diseases. So some of the pressing problems are the regulatory path, the access path, and how to get to combination therapies. And then the other thing is data sharing, right? 
Um, data, data that is siloed is not useful. Um, academic centers are siloing data so that they can use it in other circumstances or license the data. Uh, you have Critical Path Consortia, which is an amazing consortia, sharing data so that we can understand the contemporary natural history, so that we can understand protein signatures on these people um, that are maybe reasonably likely because we don't have outcome measures in many rare diseases that are sufficiently sensitive. So if we could work with FDA and EMA and other regulatory agencies to say this protein signature or this, this these biomarkers are reasonably likely to tell us that there's benefit here, we could go a long way faster and um, faster is better. Man, time matters and the meaningful outcomes to families are, are profound. I know, I know every patient advocacy group leader and other listeners understood every single word that you said and understands the power of, of, you know, their skills and what they can do to help push that forward or at least continue talking about it and pressing on the right people and the right stakeholders. What about the mom right now who has three kids at home and had to quit her job and her husband's at work and she's taking care of these kids? How can she be a part of that transformation? What can she do once a day to contribute to something big like that when she doesn't feel equipped? How do you take the intimidation factor out of it? I think there is that intimidation factor. I think a couple things. One is the one thing that everyone can do that lives in the United States or probably in, in any other country is call their congressional representative or see them when they're in, in town, right? You can call whoever's office, senator or congressman, and tell them who you are and what matters to you. You can do that every day. And I don't think that's a call you make one time and say, hi, I'm Pat Furlong and I, you know, Senator, whoever, um, I think this is important. You call them, this is like dating. You know, you're going to call them and say who you are. You're going to call them and say what the diagnosis that you care about, the person you care about, you're going to tell them the story because your story matters, right? It makes a difference to everyone who hears it. And then that person may be a staffer and say, I'll relay your message to the congressman. I would call two weeks later and say, I'm calling back. Wondered if you had a moment to talk to the congressman about, about our family, about his or her interest in this rare disease. I would make a relationship. I would then get the email. I'd send them an email and say, you know, like on September 29th of this year, my son Chris will be gone 28 years, right? I would call them and say, you know, today, my son has been diagnosed 10 years ago. We're gone 28, 29 years. And this matters to me that you're interested in Duchenne muscular dystrophy. So what you can do from your home computer or your phone for that matter, is call those representatives and tell them it matters. You can call them and say, you know, I'm trying to get into clinical trial. What, what you want to do is create that relationship. I can tell you Senator Roger Wicker, Senator Collins out of Maine is very comfortable and many other people in Congress are have really wonderful relationships with families so that they know each other. And it goes both ways when you're dating, right? Tell me about your family. Have you ever seen this disease? Do you have any rare disease? Because sometimes you'll find somebody who has the same disease you're talking about and then you you have something. So the mom at home having to quit her job, trying to make ends meet, can do that one thing, could call those people that represent her, local government as well, right? The services that your state provides for you may not be very efficient. You can call them and say, listen, I tried to get on Medicaid and the list is, you know, a waiting list of two years. 
How can that be when this need is so great? Call them two weeks later. Because I, I think, first of all, you have to be respectful and kind. That goes a long way. But you can be persistent. And persistence pays. I think Ronald Reagan said, basically, just show up. So I think those calls, those messages, when your congressman is in town, hey, I'm Pat, do you remember our phone calls? Well, if not, let me tell you the story all over again. You might have to tell your story 50 times, and you might think, I cannot say these words again. But say them again. Tell the story again. The story that you tell matters, and it will resonate. You just have to keep telling it until you find that hook, until you find that person that says yes. And I think you can do that from home. Yes, yes. And so many uh, very important reminders of some themes that we've been talking about. Tell your story. Remember who you're talking to. They are just people, just like you. And your voice can change the world. And no matter what, we can all be persistent and crazy. Crazy matters. It's okay to be crazy. <laughs> I mean, it's okay to be crazy, right? I think that there's not a human being on earth that's not crazy about something, whether that's as simple you know, as, you know, my, uh, you know, my husband likes cars, likes, can talk about them all day. I don't care. Right. But we're all crazy about something. And that's fair. That's, that's human beings. When you have a child that you, that you get a diagnosis about, or even if you don't, you want your children to thrive. So you can do whatever that means. And you can be a little crazy to make them th survive and thrive. I mean, if you had a teacher that wasn't, in your view, very good with your child, you might go see the teacher and say, hey, you know, my son is struggling or my daughter is struggling and here's why. How can we work through this? It's no different to call your congressman, your senator, your local government. In the face of the ultimate loss, you stayed and you persevered and you turned heartache into action over and over and over again. And this gene therapy is a beacon of hope for families everywhere. And your get even strategy has become a reality that is changing lives. And your sons, Patrick and Christopher, are so lucky to have had you as a mom and the Duchenne community. Oh, my goodness. Your advocacy, your legacy. I am so grateful for you. Thank you for everything that you've done to pave the way for families like ours. And you are just incredible. Thank you so much for being my guest. And I can't wait to meet you in person someday. We will meet in person. And thank you for inviting me, Effie. It's really been a pleasure. A special thank you to Dante Labs for sponsoring this episode of Once Upon a Gene. To learn more about Dante Labs and how they're revolutionizing healthcare, please visit us.dantelabs.com. I hope you've been enjoying this podcast. If you like what you hear, please share this show with your people. And please make sure to rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also head over to Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to connect with me and stay updated on the show. If you're interested in sharing your story, or if you have anything you would like to contribute, please submit it to my website at effieparks.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show and for supporting me along the way. I appreciate you all so much. I don't know what kind of day you're having, but if you need a little pick-me-up, Ford's got you. Ha 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 